The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. All right, y'all, here we go. We're live. <laughs> Today is one of those days. Technical difficulties, man. Yo, it is It is totally one of those days. But I'm glad to have technical difficulties with, with these, you guys, Darian and Ben. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I'm like, what is happening right now? I don't know. Hey, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is the Working Artist Project. My name is Darian Douglas. Yeah, my name is Gregory Ajid, and uh, we have a very special guest. How you, man, Darian? How, how are you doing tonight, man? Oh, I know, man before we introduce him, man, I'm sleepy, man. I'm not gonna lie. That's why I'm pushing all my buttons and things are going two and three times and this and that. But you know, it don't matter because we got the one and only Ben Patterson, one of the baddest piano players to ever live. <laughs> wow, that's. <laughs> I need you as my hype man, man. You got to come around to my show. <laughs> that's the that's a great introduction. That's right. That's right. Yeah, man. Today we're gonna um we're gonna gonna explore some of your music. Hopefully, you can even play for us live sure. and in, in person. And um, that's a dope Christmas tree back there, man. Wow. Thanks. It's not real. It's a Las Vegas style uh, Christmas tree, but oh. it looks great. It looks awesome. It was super easy to set up, and um, and yeah, it's nice, man. It's still you know it creates the Christmas uh, spirit a little bit. So. That's what's up. Yeah. And now, does it smell like a Christmas tree? It does not. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably get I wonder, some, I was, some air fresheners or something, but uh, yeah, I, I'm wondering at what point they're going to start making fake Christmas trees that smell like Christmas trees. Uh, yeah. You know, technology is always <laughs> going we, into uncharted territory. <laughs> growing up in in Philly, we always did the real tree. We'd go out and you know find one and haul it home, and so I I did grow up with that. But um, you know, now I'm out here in Las Vegas living the the desert lifestyle. So this is what. This is what you got. That's what's up, man. That's what's up. So, man, let's jump right in it, Ben. Um, what's happening with this new CD you got? Or I guess you recorded it last year as a Christmas record since we we already in the Christmas spirit. I'll be thanking Santa. What's that all about? Uh, it's a CD I did. Yeah, it came out, I think, just about a year ago. Uh, I think I was scrambling last year to get it out just in time for thanksgiving or you know the end of november because you know when when you do a christmas cd you have to start recording it in like may or something or right, june right. which feels a little bit weird at the time but um but yeah it came out really well i was really happy with it it's got uh two of my favorite musicians luke selick on bass charles gould on drums and um we basically we went into uh samurai hotel recording studios up in queens and we just got together in the same room. We didn't have any isolation or separation. We basically just went in and played like we would, you know, play as a trio basically in a live setting. And uh, and it, it was great. Those guys are, you know, I just have a ton of fun playing with them. The two of them have worked together as a, a rhythm section, you know, so much that they've just got a, a great hookup. And, um, and yeah, we, we played some of my favorite Christmas tunes. And then I actually wrote two original tunes as well for the CD. Okay. Okay. Is it so this is your first Christmas record? Yeah, my one and only Christmas record. You made it, bro. You made it. You did it. <laughs> Thanks, man. I might I might do an organ one at some point later down the line, but for now, we're just going to stick with this. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Man, I have to say, you wrote two original Christmas songs. That is like that is a canon of um, great songs. How did you how did how did you come about that? <laughs> well, to be honest, I wasn't going to, and then um, I was talking with Charles Gould about it and he was, he was kind of saying, dude, you know, if, if you write a Christmas song and it gets picked up for something, you know, who knows, you know, it's, it might, you know, those Christmas every December, right. It's like radio play 24 hours a day, just doing Christmas tunes. Yeah. And I think we looked it up and I I can't remember the figure now, but um, obviously this is a different, you know, category and everything, but uh, that Mariah Carey song, all I want for Christmas is you. I think we looked it up and she, she's earned like $5 million in royalties just Damn. off of that one song or something. It Wait might even be more. It might even be like 10 or 15 I wouldn't be surprised dollars. if it's much more than that, yeah. Year, right? <laughs> yeah. So Charles kind of put the idea in my head and then I was like, all right, let me sit down and just kind of see. And I wasn't taking it too seriously. And I think that kind of made it easier, actually. Because, you know, when you if you sit down and you're like, I got to write like a super deep 
uh, song, you know, that's going to be like the greatest thing, then it's almost impossible to write anything. But if you sit down and you're like, all right, I'm just going to play around with some lyrics and see if I can write some stuff about Christmas and just kind of see what comes up. It actually wasn't that hard. I feel like the tunes came pretty quick, actually. Wow. So, man, what, what all, all I heard was money. So I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to spend all year writing like, you know, different versions of because uh, of, all you got to do is change one note. Right. So if I just change one note of Rudolph, <laughs> it's mine and <laughs> put a reggaeton beat on it. You know? <laughs> I forget what the actual thing is. I think it's like you can have six notes of a melody be the same, but then like the seventh note, then it like infringes on copyright or maybe it's eight or nine notes. I don't know the exact okay. thing, but. Is there is there really like a, a legal six or seven note precedent here happening? There's there's some ratio of how similar it's allowed to be before it, it becomes copyright. Yeah. What was that? Was it that Robin Thicke was uh, taken? Um, God, who's, who, who was the original? Um, yeah, that was the, he was kind of stealing that Marvin, I think it was Marvin Gaye. The Marvin right? Gaye, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Got to give it up. If, um, if he if he got away with that, I I think everyone gets one free pass. <laughs> he he did not get away with that though. Actually, they oh, sued him, and and he actually they actually had to pay uh, Marvin Gaye's estate for having. Oh. Uh, and that one was interesting because it wasn't even really the melody; it was just everything else. It was like the whole groove, the instrumentation, everything else was totally ripped off. Oh wow! And uh, and somehow yeah, they they had to pay for that. Man, let's back it up. You know, we started at Christmas, and for the people yeah. who don't know you. <laughs> people who haven't bought all seven of your records yet but i promise they will right after this uh podcast <laughs> like where how did you get your beginnings where are you from uh so i grew up in philadelphia um and i studied classical music as a kid i did the whole you know classical piano thing playing mozart and all that stuff and then around i would say age 13 or 14 i kind of started to discover folks like oscar peterson and art tatum and ahmad jamal and bill evans and that just immediately grabbed me, you know, classical music is beautiful, but the idea that I could make up my own stuff or that I could kind of learn a language and then improvise as opposed to just learning one piece at a time, you know, just totally grabbed me. And then just to hear, you know, guys like Oscar Peterson and how hard they could swing or to hear guys like Art Tatum and just hear all the incredible stuff they were doing on the fly, technically and harmonically. Um, I basically said, I want to do that. So I started taking jazz lessons in Philly, maybe around age 15 or something like that. And uh, my stepmom actually is a uh, singer. She does not professionally, but she does like uh, some kind of opera, like community theater opera. And then she does musicals and stuff too. So my early gigs were basically backing up her and some of her singer friends just doing like show tunes and, oh, wow. and uh, stuff like that around Philadelphia. Wow. Um, then I went to Chicago. I went to University of Chicago, got a political science degree. But the whole time I was in Chicago, I was going out to... Uh, jam sessions and just, you know, playing along with records and just getting deeper and deeper. And I was lucky because University of Chicago is located on the south side of Chicago. And there was, you know, at the time, it's a lot of it has, has since closed, unfortunately. But at the time I was there, there was a, a pretty rich uh, jazz scene happening down on that south side of Chicago. So there were a lot of clubs, a lot of people, uh, jam sessions. Um, and so I got to just kind of dive into that, that community and, uh, and mm -hmm. really learned a lot there. Wow. Yeah, because Philly or Chicago, you were out there with Vaughn Freeman and all those guys, right? Right. So Vaughn used to run, he ran a jam session for 25 years every Tuesday night at this place called the New Apartment Lounge, um, which was down on 75th Street. It was a total kind of dive uh, spot. But every Tuesday it was, it was this hang. It was this really cool jazz hang. And Vaughn would just kind of hold court and like preside over the, you know, the, the proceedings. He would do a set up front and then he would sit at the back of the club while the jam session kind of unfolded. And, um, but even though, you know, he was at the back of the club, he was, he would listen to everybody that got up there to play. It was very kind of old school about that. And first, actually, I used to bring my keyboard down there because they didn't have a piano. And sometimes there wouldn't be a bass player. So I would just split my keyboard with like an acoustic bass sound on the left and a, like a road sound on the right or something okay. like that. And I would kind of cover the bass part for the jam session sometimes if there was no bass player there. And Vaughn heard me do that. And then he said, okay, you need to go play with my brother, George. And his brother, George Freeman, is a, a guitar player. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Um, and uh, George used to have an organ trio that would play at another Southside spot called the Tropical Den. And so I did about six months playing organ with George. And then Vaughn, so I guess I like passed the test or something. And Vaughn was like, okay, you can come join my band now. Uh, <laughs> and then I was, yeah, I was Vaughn's pianist for about seven years. Uh, up until when he passed. And uh, that was really my music school, you know. Yeah. Um, 
we would go out and play clubs and he would just launch into a tune without telling me what the key was or what the tune was. And fortunately for me, his bass player knew all of his stuff. So I just had to okay. kind of follow the bass. But um, yeah, it was a very old school jazz education and it was, uh, you know, the best one I could ask for. Yeah. That, that, that's such a unique experience in to have in, you know, the 2000s and, yeah. and, or the late 90s. And, and so, so Vaughn, wasn't it all turned off that you hadn't gotten a $100,000 jazz degree <laughs> from a prestigious <laughs> university? <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't seem to mind. Um, you know, he heard... You know, fortunately, something in what I was doing, whether it was the swing feel or just knowledge of tunes or something that made me want to that made him want to give me a try. And uh, and I remember he was so nice. The first time I played with him in his band for that uh, new apartment lounge jam session, he basically let me call the first three tunes of the set. He was like, well, what do you want to play for the first three tunes? And I think I called like it could happen to you. Just one of those things and polka dots and moonbeams or something as like the first three tunes. And he was like, yeah, perfect. Um and then after that, he was like, okay, he's got good enough ears. I'm just going to play what I want and he can, you know, come along for the ride. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's true, especially, you know, I'm 38 now and, and especially talking to musicians who are a little bit younger than me to, to have not gone to music school is increasingly rare. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I th- I've got nothing against music school, but maybe not have, having come up kind of through the clubs and through playing with Vaughn, maybe just gave me a little bit of a different perspective. See, Ben, we got that in common. We learn music <laughs> on the streets, man. S-K-R-E-E-T-S, streets. You didn't go to music school either. Oh, no. I went for a little bit, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> nah, nah, nah. I got it. <laughs> but, but, like, but like how, how did that, like, not going, like, not studying music in a, you know, in a cookie-cutter type environment, do you think that, how, how did that impact your life and, and it, through your perspective? Man, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, there are definitely, I think going through music school probably does expose you to a lot more different types of stuff. Like when I look at young pianists today who are coming out of uh, schools, especially like Juilliard and stuff, they probably have more tools at their disposal than I do. Like they probably know more different types of voicings and vocabulary and they have a wider range of stuff. But I don't know, I guess by not sort of being told what to pursue and only kind of going after the stuff that I found interesting or found like I wanted to add to my sound, I might have fewer sort of ideas or, or tools, but, but I feel like I have sort of each tool that I've added, I've kind of have, have added because it was something that I heard and that I wanted to get. Um, so I don't know, maybe it allowed me to, to find a, or to sort of specialize in a certain voice maybe, but at the same time, then I hear some of those guys. I'm like, man, I wish I knew how to do all that, <laughs> all that other stuff too. So it's uh, you know some good and some bad. But mm-hmm. um, but I do feel at least that wherever I've gotten to now, I feel like I kind of I found my own way there, and so maybe that helps me own it. Or- man, you know the the most interesting thing I th- I think listening to piano players everywhere, especially in New York, is a lot of times if you do go to a place like Juilliard or any of these other prestigious schools you end up going through the same process. So you might get two guys who are original out of the 100, but the other 98 dudes all sound the same. And and to me, then they struggle their whole life trying to find themselves. You know what I mean? So you you didn't have to do that because on the bandstand in the streets or in the streets, you got to be yourself from day one. You know, it's like, well, this is how I'm hearing it. This is how I'm playing it. And usually the elders would be like, if something is not it, they're going to be like, that ain't it. Don't do that. You know, so that's, that's the, to me, that's the advantage of learning music in uh, the old school way. Well, and, and the audiences too, like I said, those early gigs kind of playing around the South side of Chicago, the audiences were mostly middle-aged folks that knew the music really well and that grew up with the music really well. And they weren't interested in hearing a bunch of crazy reharms or like how, whatever, like tricks you had, like they wanted you to play real music that had a groove to it and that had a melody to it. And so, you know, the audiences, I think, also kept you kind of grounded and kept you honest in terms of what people wanted to hear. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. And so that was was good training for sure. And Vaughn too. I mean, Vaughn was all about melody. You know, he would play, um, he was a, he, he would play ballads all the time. He would always say like, he would get on the, he'd be like, this one, he'd play like a ballad and he'd say, this one's for all the ladies. And all the rich men. <laughs> and, then <he> would play. <laughs> and 
and then he would play like oh, polka man. dots and moonbeams or something. But like, oh, but he was all about melody and all about, uh, you know, ballads in particular were kind of his specialty because he could just yeah. sit in that kind of big time feel and just play all this pretty melody stuff. Why, so people are on here asking on Twitch right now. They want you to play. So oh, why don't right. you play one of those beautiful melodies for us right oh. now? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah, that was all right, man. Thanks. That's one. Um, that's one. Vaughn used to do a lot. Here's that rainy day. Ah, man. You I sound like you. Like you sound like me when you play the piano. Man. <laughs> you really. <laughs> you really remind me of that. myself, man. <laughs> man, I'm sorry. I was like sitting here listening to that, and you know, this is like I guess just a testament to the time. So if anyone's listening to this in the future, this is COVID nineteen. Yeah. Uh, 2020 edition so man it's just like just just sitting here and listening to you play is just so like it just feels so nostalgic to to just hear someone play piano man oh, <laughs> and, and especially and especially as like beautifully and, and just man melodic as you do man you, you sound great bro thank you man yeah. i really appreciate that yeah um like, sitting here thinking about ellis as you're playing too like oh, and, yeah. and I, I know you you know you did the the, the competition a couple of years ago and Man, yeah. the spirit is in you too. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. It was it was great to get to meet him, and obviously, you guys both have a lot of history with uh, with Ellis. I had just met him basically that one weekend, um, but he was super encouraging and just really nice and and warm, and you know, just a, a great presence. I was I was really glad I got to meet him. Yeah, yeah, man. I was really excited when you you did that competition, and then you won. I was like, wow, yeah, man. <laughs> and and we got to play the concert together. 
uh, at at Dizzy's. Oh yeah, did that, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, you forgot. See, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, right. With uh, with the three the three top uh, winners, right? Yeah, I got you I got and, to play um, Lucas on Lucas. Yeah, and yeah. it was great, man. And and everybody was is you know it's a dream come true as a drummer to play with three amazing piano players. <laughs> you know, so well the 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 uh, you know out of that competition, I I got to know and and become friends with. Uh, uh, the guy who won third place, Isaiah Thompson. Mm-hmm. And uh, Isaiah is, you know, uh, one of the, an example of someone who's going through music school, but still totally has his own voice and his own style. And, uh, and it was, you know, one of the, you know, best things about that competition was, was getting to know Isaiah and he's just, he's a, a good dude. And, and um, yeah. to share that concert with him was a lot of fun too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, what you got coming up next, man? Like what, is, what, are, <laughs> what are you, how are you using the COVID time to keep the music going? Right. Um, well, I mean, what COVID forced me to do and has forced all of us to do is try to find an online way to, to kind of keep making music and keep doing what we do. Um, and so this whole thing, this whole setup, this kind of live stream stuff I've been doing, I, you know, I was telling myself for years, I said, oh, I should do live stream. I should do live streams. And I never, ever did it. And finally in March and April, I said, okay, well, let me see what I can do with this. You know, and first I did it on Zoom And I kind of like charged a cover charge, like a $10 ticket price, you know, for people to kind of get the link and tune in. And then later I just switched to doing it on Facebook and YouTube and kind of putting up tip jar links and, uh, and just kind of doing it that way. Mm -hmm. And I found, you know, uh, I'd do better or at least the same just through the tip jars. And then I got to perform for way more people. So it was just more fun that way. Yeah. But that's, that's really what it's been up to is I've, I've just been trying to, it's, it's forced me to really kind of explore this solo piano kind of thing and work on my vocals too. And, you know, I'm lucky that as a piano player who also sings, I can do a lot by myself. Um, And so it's kind of just forced me to take advantage of that and try to get a a regular thing going. And it's, it's really been cool. I mean, you know, I get people tuning in from other countries, from, you know, Australia or Japan or Europe or even in the States or in, in Canada, but just in more remote locations or, you know, people who are older who wouldn't necessarily go out to the clubs. And a lot of them comment and they say, this has actually been great because now all this music is online that didn't used to be, and we can actually now access it. Whereas, you know, we weren't going to make it to a late night set at Smalls (laughs) in the village. They just weren't going to do that. Um, so I think it has kind of opened up you know, I've found avenues to kind of connect with, with a, a sort of wider range of fans, even if it is just digitally. And almost all of them say, you know, please keep doing these shows even after clubs open up and things go back to normal because we want this kind of online um, experience. So mm-hmm. that's kind of been my main thing. I've been teaching a bunch too. I do Zoom lessons and stuff, but um, performance-wise, I've been trying to do like two live streams a week. Yeah. And I've awesome. been I've been in the audience for some of those, man. Okay, yeah, I've seen you in the comments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're very special. Go ahead, Greg. Ben, when 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 so you were making that transition from you know, I, mean, I guess we're all making the transition, but but what what were like some of the technical things that you kind of had to work out from your end to to be able to do live streams and 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 host these high quality online sessions? Um, yeah, it's kind of an evolving thing. I mean, when I first started out. Back in March, uh, we were in uh, in New York in our tiny apartment there, and I have kind of a small upright piano, but trying to figure out kind of how to get a good sound out of that and and how to make it kind of look right. And then we ended up going to Chicago for a bit and quarantining with a friend of mine there for like about a month or six weeks in April and be early May. And I kind of, you know, the piano there wasn't as good, so I had to try to kind of make that happen. Sorry, pardon me. But now for the last six months, man, I can't even, six or seven months, I can't even tell anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm gone, right? <laughs> uh, we've actually been out in, um, at uh, my mother-in-law's house out in Las Vegas. And um, one of the nice things about it is there's this really nice Steinway grand piano here, which is awesome for me. I mean, just to be stuck, you know, somewhere quarantining with this amazing instrument is is great. So I've just been tweaking, you know, finding different mic settings and stuff to try to get a good sound out of it. And then, yeah, trying to figure out sort of what platforms have the best quality, kind of like we're all doing. I, I, I end up going to a site called Restream, which then sends it out to uh, YouTube and Facebook. I think you might even be using the same thing right now, right? We're using it right now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to, trying to do that. And then, you know, the nice thing, Restream kind of has a cool chat module that grabs the chat from like all the different platforms and puts them into one. Mm-hmm. So I tried, you know, taking a page from 
Twitch streamers or whatever and putting that up on my stream so you, people could see the comments going by. Um, so it's kind of been an experiment. I've kind of had this same setup for the last like three or four months now. I haven't really done anything much to tweak it, but uh, but it's cool to watch what some people are doing and and you know with their multicam setups and like crazy audio interfaces. I mean, people are really uh, able to put together some good stuff these days. Yeah, yeah, man, it's interesting, and, and that was a great question, Greg, because we're all you know having to pivot. Like, oh, how can I now put my content online? And the interesting thing about live streams like people are here watching us on three different platforms and they're interacting with us as we go you know like you were playing your song mm-hmm. and someone was like man i'm writing the lyrics to this right now i'm freestyling you know like yo <laughs> great <laughs> keep freestyling. you know and we can really get in there with the audience in a different way that we couldn't necessarily in the club and and, yeah. and like you said before it's beautiful that people can access the music who weren't able to because of location. Like I know, for instance, you have a, we've been to Japan together. So I know you're a superstar in Japan. You know, I used to, Greg, I used to get really pissed because Ben, I would sell two CDs and Ben would sell 50 in one concert. <laughs> and we're both side men, dude. I'd be like, yo, man, how many you sell? But so, you, so I know that it's great to have those people. Because uh, you're not the Uno champion in, in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely the Uno champion in Japan, Japan man. For sure. <laughs> man, I, I want to kind of go back to kind of talk about some of our mentors. And, and you mentioned Vaughn and you played that song. And what, what kind of influence did he have on you like after death? Hmm. Wow, that's that's tough. Um, I mean, I think, you know, just the kind of the stuff I learned by playing with him just sort of stuck with me. Um, kind of those, yeah, it's just sort of treatment of melody or of, of swing or of, uh, um, you know, just kind of little lessons. I remember there was one time we were playing a rhythm changes tune and we've all been there where you're playing a rhythm changes tune and like you can't come up with anything to say. And then, so I was just quoting a bunch of other rhythm changes heads. Like I was playing like anthropology and then moose for moose, moose the mooch and like different things. And I remember Vaughn kind of leaned over in the middle of the solo on the piano. And he's like, he's like, that's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, Oh man, you know, he totally kind of caught, caught me on that. But he really, he really said very little actually when we were playing most of the time, he would just kind of list, you know, stand in like the corner of the piano. And if I played something he liked, he would kind of nod or kind of say like, yeah, yeah. You know, um, but uh, I don't know. Since then, I'm not sure. I think it's I think it's just been those lessons of just you know like that sort of melodic approach and kind of respect for the old tunes and and I guess too you know I don't know if I embody this a whole lot, but what one of the things that made Vaughn so special was his ability to just completely like shift musical genres in like a moment, right? Because he he was born in the 20s grew up with, you know, 30s big bands, like lived through all of bebop and like the 50s. I mean, he basically lived through like the whole history. And then he played with Sun Ra for a while. And he would do that where like one phrase of his solo might be like a really old school blues lick or like some Lester Young kind of like swinging thing. And then then literally like three seconds later, he would play a phrase that seemed like it sounded like it came from uh, Sun Ra and was just like completely free and like completely out there. And so I don't know, a little bit of just kind of, I don't know, just trying to kind of not being afraid to kind of mix styles uh, or just kind of say what you have to say without getting too, I guess, uh, precious about it. And that's another thing I think some, you know, especially in New York, well, at least, you know, pre-COVID New York, and I'm sure it'll be that way again. There's such a big scene and there's so many clubs that everybody tends to like, they, they, it's tempting to really like just specialize in like this one super specific style or one super specific language. And I think I never could quite get in with that because it's, it just seemed too, I don't know. I like things to just be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more personal where you can jump around a little bit without having to try to be super authentic just to one particular time period. Yeah, that's such an, a unique experience too. that. Like the, the, I mean, people from Vaughn's generation, like, I feel like the major, like Cannonball, like they all played all types of music. They didn't just play bebop or they, Cannonball just wasn't a bebop saxophone player. And, and 
it's I, it's again like I feel like that that's school context. Like I I've run into musicians in random situations where they they start like yeah like I, I play bebop and I'm like what the because bebop you know like <laughs> what does that mean like you either play or you don't you know yeah. <laughs> and yeah. i don't care if you play but yeah to, to, to find that that way to infuse coltrane with sun Ra, with you know with louis armstrong in in, in, in a standard is i feel like a, a gift that a lot of our mentors who learn in the, the streets uh there you go like embodied <laughs> in such a way that i, I think is has been compartmentalized like through education you know like our generation of cats you know it's it's yeah yeah you got me thinking about that <laughs> i asked that question because sometimes i find myself on the bandstand i'm sure you guys do too thinking about past experiences you know like for instance like i play with uh all kind of motherfuckers you know uh let's see we'll take ellis for instance and and i i'm like okay i learned to play with piano players playing with ellis not knowing how to play the drums if that makes sense so so like years later i'm like okay now i get it and now I get those lessons or now I get why he was just looking at me a certain way. You know, like all of these kind of things kind of click sometimes 10 or 15 years later. And so I was wondering if you had had some of those experiences like that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm not like the wildest, you know, craziest player on the bandstand. But when I when I would start and when I was first playing with Vaughn, I was pretty young. I was probably 23 three or 20, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was, and back then I was, I hadn't had that much experience and I was even more kind of safe. I would just kind of play stuff. And sometimes I think I would go to end my solo and Vaughn kind of wouldn't let me, he'd be like, be like, come on, you know, like he'd kind of try to egg me on to try to get me to like, just like release control a little bit and just kind of let stuff go a little bit, which is, you know, still something that, uh, I think as musicians, we're always kind of trying to find the right balance, right, between playing what we know and, and leaving room for some kind of new stuff or inspiration or, or just kind of, you know, the best stuff usually happens when you let go a little bit. Um, and, uh, and that's something I think I can remember him kind of doing that. And it's something I still, you know, I still tend to stay like I'm a pretty old school player. I'm not I don't usually bust out into like a bunch of crazy stuff. But but I try to, to work on leaving myself room to at least, you know, play things that are unexpected or, or, um, you know, leave room for spontaneity basically. Uh, and I think that's one thing that, that Vaughn tried to push on me that I wasn't quite, I didn't quite get at the time. You know, I was always kind of like, Oh man, another chorus. Like, you know, what am I going to play for another chorus? (laughs) But I can see in retrospect that, and it's funny, I went, someone actually just sent me a couple of recordings of, of me playing with him back in like 2007 or something. And I could tell that, yeah, he wanted me to just, just like let it out, just kind of throw down with a little bit more, um, you know, oomph or whatever, or just kind of release control a little bit. And so, mm-hmm. you know, even if it, you don't have to go crazy, but you have to find a way to leave space for the unexpected to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Absolutely. As, as, so then like now, I guess like now that you're 38 and like, you, the, you know, you're essentially a mentor now to just young piano players and as a teacher, what, what is like the most important lesson that, that as a mentor that you would want to pass on to your students? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, (laughs) I end up working with my students a lot on, um, on actually on some of that same kind of thing on basically on, on groove and on feel and on, trying to get out of your own head and just listen and kind of let music like the music develop. Like I have this exercise I do with students where, especially a lot of students who come to me, they, they tend to be like maybe middle-aged folks who have played a lot when they were younger and now they kind of have time and they want to get back into it. And they might actually know a lot of the theory in their head. They might actually know a bunch of voicings or know a bunch of, you know, scales or like tunes. But a common thread is that it's, it's just hard to kind of get it to all kind of flow and to all sound like, music. Um, and there's one exercise that I love to do with them where I say, okay, we take a tune that, that they know. And I say, okay, I want you to put on a backing track either, you know, with their like iReal Pro or their, you know, whatever, just put on a backing track. And I'm like, all I want you to do is I want you to just listen to the bass player with as much of your attention as you possibly can. Just put like a hundred percent of your attention on to the bass. And if you only play three notes or you just play the melody in the super simple way, that's totally fine. But just by forcing them to put their attention on something else, something other than their own playing, 
usually like 80% of the things about their playing just like immediately fix themselves. Hmm. Like they just kind of fall into a groove. They start to hear where all the language that they've learned sort of in their head actually, actually goes and how to actually make music with it. Um, so I think, I don't know, I work with students on that kind of stuff on trying to, trying to play simply, trying not to necessarily play the coolest, like most hip lick you ever played, but to, but to play it in the pocket and to make it sound and feel good. Right. That's the most important thing. There's that, there's that video that keeps going around of Ray Brown giving that, that, uh, masterclass. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. It's, it's a cool video. It's Ray Brown giving a masterclass and he's, uh, probably back in the eighties and he talks about meeting this bass player and he's like, yeah, this guy could, you know, play all up in the thumb position and, you know, knew all his scales and everything. He's like, but his sound was terrible <laughs> and his groove was terrible. Hmm. And, you know, I, I always try to tell my students the first thing that people are going to notice is whether something feels good or not. And if you can play stuff that's simple but has like a nice pocket to it and a nice like easy swing to it, that's already better than if you can play all kinds of fancy stuff and it never sits in the pocket or it never feels good. So I don't know. I try to stress with them. And I think Vaughn would have said the same thing that it's, yeah, it's about kind of make, trying to play honestly and make music rather than just try to throw like the kitchen sink into everything. Yeah. Ben, I want to, I want to switch gears and I'm curious about your inspiration to start singing because it's not very common actually, Greg, believe it or not, in New York for motherfuckers to be singing who don't sing. In New Orleans, everybody sing, you know? <laughs> if you play, you sing. But up here, they don't. But And it wasn't like you were a singer. You had to work on it, right? Yeah, I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah. So what, but, what was um, that inspiration to get that going? Well, I think I spent a lot of my uh, career working with singers. I spent like probably... You know, if you counted up all the gigs I've ever done in my life and somehow separated them into categories, probably, especially in the time I was in Chicago, probably backing up singers would probably make up more than 50% of my lifetime gig totals, actually. Um, so I just know a lot of tunes. I know a lot of lyrics. I know, you know, I know, um, and I listen to a lot of singers. I listen to a lot of, you know, folks like Shirley Horn and Carmen McRae and Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald. And, you know, I, I, so I, I like that kind of music and there's something about, um, you know, I feel like I, I feel like I play instrumentally better after I or someone else has sang the melody, which is kind of interesting. I feel like the statement of that melody and the lyrics then makes whatever comes after it usually sound better, <laughs> or at least for me. Um, and then also there's just the, the, the straight up crowd appeal of it. And the, you know, if you have a band with someone who's singing, you can instantly appeal to a much wider range of people. Yeah. And I say around, you know, in Chicago, I did some of my own projects, but I didn't do as much stuff as a band leader. And probably starting around in New York, like 2014, 2015, I started to do way more stuff under my own name. And so, you know, I tried to look for ways to, to connect with people and try to make it as, you know, have, have as much content and, and just good music in there as I could. And I said, all right, well, let me see if I can add some, some vocals. See, I thought she was going to say Johnny O'Neill. <laughs> well, Johnny is definitely <laughs> up there with the, uh, the inspirations and the influences for sure. I mean, to watch Johnny, like just have a crowd, like laughing and swinging and smiling and then have him like in tears and, you know, Johnny's a special cat. I mean, Johnny more than just about anybody can just pour all this raw emotion into what he plays and somehow gets the whole, he, he just like casts a magic spell over the whole room and, and does that. And yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to have even just a little piece of that if I could uh, inspire some of that, some of those feelings or, or some of those, uh, grab some people through the use of those lyrics, then, um, then yeah, I'd love to do that. The right piece, absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Johnny's got, you know, he's got like, comedy routines and stuff. He's a whole, he's, he's a, a unique uh, performer and a, and a special dude. But Johnny is one of the, I will say he's one of the reasons I decided to move to New York from Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, Cause in Chicago, there's a bunch of great musicians. There's a, in particular on organ, this guy I learned so much organ stuff from this guy, Chris Foreman, who's an incredible Chicago organ player. Um, but there weren't a lot of pianists that I really felt like I I like heard them and I was like, oh, I got to learn that or I got to, you know. But as soon as I went to New York and I heard Johnny playing at Smalls, like my brain exploded. I was like, that's, I got to learn all of that. Like the voicings, the swing, like everything that he's doing, like is just, you know, was connected with me so hard. And so that, he was one of the main reasons I decided to move there. Yeah. Man, uh, I'm just curious, man. You know, can you play us and sing us something? 
Uh, <laughs> you feel like yeah, doing that? Yeah, let me think. What would you guys like to hear? Uh, play, play me your best song, man. My best song? That's, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> How about some blues? How about that? There you go. You know I'm from Mississippi, right? Please. I know. I know. <laughs> well, this is, this is a, a Moe's Allison blues. I don't know if you guys know Moe's, but um, I think he was actually from South Carolina, so it's not quite Mississippi, but... But it's got some good lyrics. All right, let me try this guy. Country's country. If this life is driving you to drink You're sitting around wondering just what to think Well, I've got some consolation I'll give it to you if I might Well, I don't worry about a thing Cause I know nothing's gonna be alright Well, this world is one big trouble spot Cause some have plenty and some have not You know I used to be troubled But I finally saw the light Now I don't worry about a thing Cause I know nothing's gonna be alright time trying to be a go-getter things will get worse before they get any better you know there's always somebody playing with dynamite so i don't worry about a thing because i know nothing's going to be all right Something like that. It's been a little while on that one, but uh, I feel like the lyrics fit the times, you know? Yes, indeed, bro. That was beautiful, man. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> man, we got to, we got to, uh, we're going to run out of time soon, but I want to mm. make sure we don't miss the opportunity to talk about this Christmas record again and maybe play, play a song or two. Sure. <laughs> and uh, it's called, which, what was it called again? I'll be thanking Santa. Yeah, I'll be thanking Santa when COVID go away. How about that? There you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, I want to mention too, uh, just for folks listening, I do a uh, these live stream shows I do every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern time and every Wednesday at uh, 7.30 Eastern time. Uh, and if anybody wants to get on the mailing list for that stuff, I mean, you can find it on my Facebook page, Ben Patterson Music, but you could also head to my website, benpatterson.com. And uh, that's got all the info for those live streams there. Perfect, man. So y'all make sure y'all check out Ben's live streams every week and fill that tip jar up, you know? There you go. <laughs> fill the bucket. Fill the bucket. All right. So why don't we um why don't we uh take a pause for the cause and play? Yeah, God rest you merry gentlemen. Yeah. There it is. Let's play that one.
Yeah, y'all. Hey, Ben, how does it feel to have the most swinging Christmas record <laughs> of all time? That shit is crazy. That should be illegal. Uh, man. Y'all need to go buy that record right. Or can they get that on Bandcamp? Uh. It should be on, ooh, I'm actually not sure, but you can definitely get it from my website, benpatterson.com. There's MP3s and WAV files up there. There you go. So make sure I go to check out Ben's website and download download that record five times, there you, you know, because that's crazy, <laughs> man. That's crazy. Just hearing you play it makes me miss uh, playing with, with other people. I miss, miss playing with you, Darian. I wish we could do a oh, set together, you know. I retired, man. I don't play drums anymore. <laughs> Let me get a beat. Look, give me a week to get a B3 in here, and then we'll do a, an organ trio set. Okay. All right. Let's do it, man. I'm down. I'm Zoom down. organ trio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So, yeah, we. that's about it, man. We're going to go ahead and wrap things up. But, Ben, man, thank you so much for coming on the Working Artist Project. Guys, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was a pleasure getting a talk, a chance to meet you. And uh, yo, you're a bad motherfucker, man. <laughs> <laughs> like Darian said, man, you swing so hard, it should be illegal. Oh, man. <laughs> I like that. Let's get a let's get a trio going down in uh, New Orleans one of these days, man. I'm I'm way overdue for a trip down there. Anytime, please. We'd love to have you here. I used to go when I would go down there. I used to go always go to DBA to try to see Walter Wolfman Washington. Ooh, uh, yes, that was one of my favorite bands to check out. And then usually duck across the street to the Spotted Cat, see whatever was going on over there. Um, I remember I used to go over to the Maple Leaf and hear uh, Rebirth. Um, so, yeah, I've got... So you're doing all right. You know what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely had some fun trips to New Orleans, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm well overdue now. Man, we'd love to have you back here, Ben. Absolutely. Y'all, thank y'all so much. My name is Darian Douglas. And uh, my name is Gregory Ajid. And we'll catch y'all next time. Later. <laughs>